Let us pray. Richard Niebuhr once said, We sought a good to love and were found by a good who loved us. Lord, may the voices of children and choir of sermon and scripture bear witness to the good who in Jesus Christ has loved us. In his name we pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, my Presbyterian clergy wife and I were discussing in the kitchen about upcoming sermons and worship services this season. She asked, what do you think draws people to worship on Christmas Eve? My answer was beauty, and her answer was peace. She is probably right. The most beautiful story that draws us to this place this night and draws others to similarly named places around the world is Luke's story of the birth of Christ. But its most memorable words are less a tribute to beauty than to peace. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace among those whom God favors. Likewise, among the most remembered of all the prophetic passages that prepare us to hear and receive the birth of Christ is the one that has come to be commonly called the peaceable kingdom. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together. Bumping into one another in the kitchen which seems to happen in all kitchens, no matter the size, we continue to discuss the possibility that what draws people to church is what they is the hope that they are looking for. But then we acknowledge that hope is the focus of Easter, so with Christmas we need to concentrate on beauty or peace. Whether it is peace or beauty that draws us to worship is in many ways an academic question. For a strong case can be made for each. But the case I want to make tonight is this. Whatever it is to which the Christ the birth of Christ leads, his birth arises from and within the sadness and decay of the world. What God does at Christmas is to bring something new, something reborn, something created from the destructiveness and decay into which God's creation has fallen. In light of this recreation of all that has gone wrong, we who inhabit the earth, even as we mourn its fractures and pray over all that troubles us about it, are renewed to work for its healing and live toward the redemption and the peace and the beauty that his birth promises. In Christ's birth, God reaches down into any fracture we are experiencing. In our personal health, in our family, in our relationships of love and intimacy, in marriage, in work, in the politics of our nation, and in the relations among nations of the world, in the birth of Christ, God has reached down and sown seeds of renewal and redemption. The birth of Christ is thus the happy beginning or the happy re-beginning of our lives in our world and of our lives in the world. 
It thus encompasses the beauty and the peace and, yes, even the hope that we all seek. Earlier this summer, I shared with you that on the afternoon my mother passed away in Memphis over Memorial Day this year, Memorial Day weekend, after making arrangements at the hospital, I drove around the city and visited old sites from my childhood, basking in the sunshine of the beautiful spring day that it was. It was very healing. One of those sites that I visited was the park that my brother and I used to walk to in those days, unaccompanied by adults or nannies, the latter of whom I was only aware of in the person of Mr. French for Buffy and Jody and Sissy on family affair. The age division among the congregation is becoming clear. When I drove by the park, I noticed that it had one of those brown signs at the entrance with the name of the park named in honor of some luminary or dignitary. But the name didn't register with me, for in my family, the park was simply known as the Ben Again Park. Somehow, before the grammar rules took hold and the speech patterns that were forming in my brother and my childhood brains... Either my brother or I had devised the name of the park as Ben Again. What we undoubtedly meant was that we were going to the park to which we had been before, Ben Again. The birth of Christ brings back into the present elements of the world, elements of God's creation, which we have experienced before. Beauty, peace, hope, the been-again park, the been-again birth of Christ. I see this rebirth and return most subtly in the first line of the beloved Isaiah passage that we read earlier. Undoubtedly, it is Isaiah's vision of the peaceable kingdom that etches this passage into our memory. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid. But it is actually the opening line of the, pap of the passage which establishes the basis or at least the location for such a promise of peace. This line reads in the King James Version, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. Now follow me along here. Jesse is the father of King David. David is among the most revered rulers in Israel's history, having established the monarchy and expanded the territory of the people of God a thousand years before the birth of Christ. But David, as you know, is also among the most flawed leaders that human history has known. By the time Isaiah wrote, several centuries after David, the kingdom which David had established was plunged, because of his flaws, into disarray, division, exile. 
Yet Isaiah is bold enough to promise that even from the stem of David decaying in the forest, a rod shall come forth and a branch shall grow. New life shall emerge from death, decay, destruction. When we fast forward to the New Testament, we notice that its opening words in the Gospel of Matthew are a genealogy over which our eyes glaze and from which our fingers quickly turn the page. But listen to the introduction to Matthew's genealogy. The genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It is from the timber decaying on the forest floor, the fallen branch of Jesse's son, David, that ultimately produces the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the son of David. And it is this same Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who will grow up to embody the characteristics of peace that draw us here tonight. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Therefore, in Christ's power and under Christ's ultimate rule, the wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. Now, speaking of limbs, I want to go out on one now, at least pastorally. Unlike many churches and synagogues of all stripes across the country, you've read about it in the papers, how much in decline religious institutions in America are, our church is actually doing well. The past six months have brought an uptick in almost every category of measurement, attendance and participation and financial giving and growth and membership. As a pastor, I could not be happier. But some of what is going on in our individual lives is not as flourishing. It's more trying, more tragic. A brother and sister in our congregation are spending their first Christmas without their mother. And their aunt, who is now their parent, is spending her first Christmas without hers. Some in the congregation are facing uncertain or even discouraging news from some of the finest doctors and medical facilities in the world. A seemingly higher number of people in the congregation have lost parents this year. For several, the last living parent. For some, both parents. A beloved couple in the church who've been married over 70 years lost their daughter earlier this year. And each struggle with the fatigue of aging as they draw ever closer to the valley of the shadow of death. After the early service this morning, the 11 o'clock service this morning, there was a dignified man who came in 
to the building about the time we were having fellowship. He was carrying a, a knapsack uh, backpack and went to the food, the reception table and, and got some food and was very uh, gentle. And I made conversation with him and he, I had my robe on and he asked if I would pray with him. And I said, of course, I'll pray with you. So we went into the chapel in the next room and we sat down and he began to tell me a little bit about what he asked me to pray for. And then I pressed him some more and some more and he opened up. A year ago, his father died. This man's about my age. A few months later, his ex-wife, who was raising their 16-year-old daughter in another state, was killed in a car accident. About four months after the daughter came to live with him and he tried to manage the significant amount of psychiatric medication she was on, she took her life with a handgun he had bought for the apartment in which they lived, which he felt he needed to keep them safe. And he was here this week, not in a part of, not in a city that he's familiar with, to take his mother's ashes and bury them in a local cemetery, as she too passed away two weeks ago. I don't always carry cash, but he wanted to get back to Houston, where he lives and has a job. And I happened to have enough cash in my wallet to give him for the ticket that he needed, the Greyhound ticket that he needed, and about another $15 for food along the way. So sometime, I think he said at 1.50 a.m., you know, a few hours from now, he'll board a bus, presumably, and go home, and go home. But he's Presbyterian. I used to live in Houston. He's mentioned a couple of churches that he's been to. He knows his way around. He says he will get a therapist, as I believe he will. And I suggested another church to go to that I know is near the part of town that he lives. I think he will find life out of the decay of the last year. And not to keep it just on the personal level, a few days ago I read an article entitled The New War Against African Christians. It's about the threat to Nigerian Christians from, an, from a Muslim extremist group. The author, Bernard Henri Levy, began this way. A slow-motion war is underway in Africa's most populous country. It's a massacre of Christians, massive in scale and horrific in brutality, and the world has hardly noticed. He concludes, I have the terrible feeling of being carried back to Rwanda in the 1900s, to Darfur and South Sudan in the 2000s. Will the West let history repeat itself in Nigeria? News of this threat was new to me, and I pride myself, at least to some degree, on keeping up what is going on in the world. But I sometimes feel that the frenzy and division of the political culture in our own country has left us unaware and insensitive to what is going on in other countries, among other peoples. 
In some ways, we've become like a family so involved in our internal feuds that we barely notice that the neighbors up the street have now called the police three times on their uncle who lives in the basement and that the widow next door grows lonelier and more isolated by the day. It is a unique form of decay of dead timber on wet forest floor that we seem to face. But into this Davidic line of decay, the birth of Christ comes and it brings with it the beauty and peace and yes, the hope that we seek, all of which we have seen tonight in what we have sung, in what we have heard, in what has been read before us. Like its harbinger in the ancient woods, the shoot from the stem of Jesse, the birth of Christ is connected with so many aspects of life that grow out of dead timber, dead wood, fallen trees, that we cannot help but believe that in this birth God is doing something dramatically new. Think for a minute of all the ways in the past that God has used wood, timber, as an instrument for renewal. Remember God appearing to the elderly and childless Abraham by an oak tree with the promise of a son. Remember Aaron's rod blossoming and his brother Moses' staff parting the waters of the Red Sea so that people might cross over into freedom. And then that same rod turning sweet the bitter waters of Marah so that the newly freed people could drink in the wilderness that followed. Remember God's rod and staff comforting David after his fall and failure. And remember the words he penned in their honor. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And then recall as well the most significant depiction of wood in the scriptures. The cross of Christ. The Christ born in a wooden manger grew up to be crucified. And in the words of Peter, carrying up our sins in his body on the tree so that by his wounds we are healed. A terrific scholar, Francis Young, whom I've rediscovered in the past year, writes eloquently of the way the branch in the woods, the fallen tree, the timber of the cross are all signs of peace and beauty and hope. She refers to the generative, generative role of the cross as tree, the shoot out of the stock of Jesse. As tree of life, she writes, the cross is the fruition of God's creative intentions, generating new life out of death. Even in the midst of decay and dissolution, life is potentially joyous, creative, full of vitality, Beautiful and variegated, a source of wonder, a source of transcendence. Brian Doyle, who made his living as a writer, passed away in 2017 at the age of 60 after a brief illness. Among the final words he penned, he wrote, were these, We are only here for a minute. We're here for a little 
window and to use that time to catch and share shards of life and laughter and grace seems to me the greatest story that anyone could write. A 17th century hymn proclaims, Faithful cross the saints rely on, noble tree beyond compare. Sweet the timber, sweet the iron, sweet the burden that they bear. A shoot shall come out from the stock of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. Sweet the timber, sweet the manger, sweet the cross. Amen.